just uh, this morning, uh, when I first came in, uh, speaking to Deep, Deep asked me, oh, so I, you know, I see you're preaching. Who are you going to make fun of today? And I'm like, is this the reputation that I'm getting? I'm really, I'm really offended. I'm really disappointed in the you guys. I thought, you know. But the French, I mean, <sighs> an easy swipe. In England, oh no, I won't even go there. It's a long-running battle. But I'm just saying, we have a part of France called Brittany. There's no part of France, or there's no part of England called Francie. So, look who's winning. So, uh, this uh, week we're carrying on in our series looking uh, at the journey as we're kind of walking with the disciples uh, on, on their kind of journey to the day of Pentecost and then from Pentecost onwards. And so far we've kind of uh, explored what it must have been like for them journeying with Jesus on Palm Sunday, then journeying to the cross and the despair that, that they must have felt on that Friday, and then the resurrection hope of Sunday, and then that kind of uh, key kind of moment, those 40 days in between where, where Jesus was ministering and, and teaching them. And so last week, kind of Rob spoke about this idea of the kingdom. What does it mean to be in the kingdom? And, and today I want to pick up just kind of that next stage on. And I think if I was to ask you, well, what are the key moments of Jesus' life? I think you would be able to kind of, you know, highlight the major of them. So obviously his virgin birth, his, his time teaching in parables, uh, his, his miracles, obviously, you know, um, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday. But some of you may even be able to say the ascension. But I think for the vast majority of us, we kind of have this concept that, yeah, we know Jesus rose and went into heaven, but, but we don't really give it much thought. We kind of see it as being, it's a really nice way of kind of ending the story. It kind of wraps everything up really neatly. It transitions us, you know, from the ministry of Jesus into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But actually, there is deep spiritual, theological, and eschatological significance to the ascension. And that's one of the things that I want us just to spend some time this morning kind of looking at is what actually happened and what is the implication for me today. Because I think when we understand the ascension properly, what it actually unlocks uh, in us is a better understanding of God's kingdom and most importantly, this idea that Jesus is king. I mean, that sounds like such an obvious statement. You know, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been around the church even just for a couple of days, you know, this idea that Jesus is king makes sense. But actually, when we, when we really think about it, when we really start to unpack that statement, we realize that it is absolutely revolutionary. Jesus is king. Jesus sits upon the throne in heaven, and all power, all authority, all dominion is under his feet. Jesus is king. And so that phrase, what it should do in us is it should rise up a certain sense of hope. It should rise up in us a sense that, you know what, if Jesus is king, I don't have to be. Now, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I think I would be an amazing king. I've been watching The Crown. I think I've said this in the past. I got in loads of trouble with my wife, because apparently this was one of these Netflix shows we were meant to watch together. She went away on business, and I binge watched the whole thing in a weekend. As a result, I have not seen season two, so no spoilers. But I think 
I would be a really good king. I think I could sit on the throne. I think I could make regal decisions. I think I would look, I've always said this, I'd look awesome in red velvet. I mean, you know, I've just, I think I've got the grace, the suave and the charm, you know, anytime anyone wants to kneel at my feet and serve me, I'd be awesome at it. I, I would. Like, I mean, let's just agree. Let's have consensus in the church. I would be an awesome king. What would I be? Thank you. That's so kind of you to say. Oh, oh, I'm touched. But while I think I would be a good king in terms of the sort of the day-to-day enjoying the benefits, the idea of actually being sovereign, actually being everything that a king is meant to be, this idea that a king it is not about his own self-interest. It's not about his own power, but it's about serving his kingdom. It's about putting forward the needs of his subjects. It's about raising the kingdom into a place where everyone prospers. I think if that was the case, if that is the criteria, then I would be unpopular. And so when we say that Jesus is king, what it does is it means that I don't have to be. It means that you don't have to be. It means that you don't need to be sovereign over the difficulties that you are going through. It means that you don't need to be in charge of when you're facing um, uh, spiritual attack, of when there's difficulties of work, when you're struggling with finances, when you're struggling with health. It means that Jesus is sovereign over those situations. And because Jesus is sovereign, it means that no matter what we face in our life, we can have hope. We know that we will prevail. We know that we will overcome. We know that we will succeed. So if you've got your Bibles uh, with you, turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 1. Uh, so Luke, writing the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, to give it its uh, full title, it's, uh, it's the second part of a two-part series, and he, he's following on from his gospel. And in the Gospel of Luke, what Luke has sought out to do is kind of uh, talk about kind of the what and where of Jesus. So where Jesus went, what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And so then this kind of second part of the series, he's still writing to Theophilus, who is a, a well, scholars believe is a, a Roman commander, a, a, a real military leader, a Gentile convert to Christianity, who's actually commissioned Luke to basically write an orderly account of what was going on. And so Luke, being a doctor and a companion of Paul, kind of has this first-hand experience of, of what Jesus did. And so Acts, then, is kind of the next step in the story. It's kind of, so, so Jesus came, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again, Jesus then went up into heaven. What was the impact for the early church? How did it transform this bunch of kind of backwater fishermen and tax collectors who society had basically given up on into a group of revolutionaries that changed the world. I think the book of Acts is one of the most important books for our Christian faith. And and obviously the whole Bible is, is important. But you know what the book of Acts speaks to me? Is that I am an ordinary backwater, maybe not a fisherman, but I can be transformed the Holy Spirit into being a revolutionary that can change and transform the world. The book of Acts is one of these books of great hope for every single uh, Christian. 
And so one of the things that I love about Luke is that he, he has this writing style where every time he kind of comes to a, a, a conclusion or the end of a major moment, before he shifts to the next moment, he gives us these little summaries. He gives us these little kind of highlights of what's uh, taken place. And in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we see uh, Luke summarizing his gospel. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, season 2 of a series on Netflix, and they go, this is what happened last time. That's basically what Acts 1 verse 1 is. So this is what Rob preached from last week. So let's, let's have a look. In the first book, I lost this, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So even though much of the three years that the disciples had kind of spent with Jesus had been kind of focused on the kingdom, and the kingdom parables and, and Jesus showing sort of practically, tangibly what the kingdom of God could look like. That we see this kind of shift that happens after the resurrection. And this becomes the sole focus of Jesus' teaching. And so it's like for 40 days there's a, there's a new urgency. There's a new sense that, that he needs to be preparing the disciples to embrace this coming kingdom. And the problem was the disciples were still holding on to this old mindset. Uh, mindset. They were still seeing it as a political kingdom. They were still seeing it as a kingdom built by bricks and mortar. And as Rob so, so wonderfully kind of talked about last week, that actually the kingdom of God is so much more than that. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a geographical kingdom. But it's a kingdom that is built on the presence and essence of God. It is a kingdom that sole purpose is to display to the world the glory of who God is. So about 15 years later, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, describes the kingdom of God like this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The way that we know whether the kingdom has broken through, the way that we can see where the kingdom has manifested in our life is when we see the nature of God, when we see the virtues of God, when we see the essence of God appear, that is where the kingdom is. And so that everything that we're doing in Greece, when we go on these international upliftment trips, when we're serving people, even if we never pronounce the name of Jesus, when we act in a Christ-like manner, when we serve people with the hands and feet of God, when we love them with God's heart, God's kingdom is breaking into their lives. I love the fact that, that this is not a gospel that's built on words. This is not a kingdom that's built necessarily on what we say, though that is important. But it certainly is a kingdom that is built on action and love. So for 40 days, Jesus again and again is teaching him about this coming, uh, about this coming kingdom. And so we pick up now uh, in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked, so this is the disciples after 40 days, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So 40 days after Resurrection Sunday, Jesus um, calls the disciples to come meet him on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives throughout the gospel has always been a place of real significance, a place of real importance. Time and time again, key significant moments 
have taken place there. But it wasn't just important in terms of Jesus' uh, ministry. But throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we see this kind of uh, prophecy over this place. In the book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy that Yahweh, that God the Father, God himself, will stand upon the Mount of Olives and split it in two, and he will make a path for salvation of the Jews. Yahweh, God, will stand on the Mount of Olives and make a path of salvation. It was also believed that on the Mount of Olives that the, the Messiah would appear, and that from that place the Messiah would call forth the resurrection of the dead. So in this one location, in the back of every good Jew's mind, was a place where God would appear and salvation would come forth. A place where the Messiah would stand and resurrection would take place. So Jesus calls his disciples to this place. They know that this is a, a, a loaded invitation. They know that something significant is going to take place. They, they, they feel in a heart. And so they ask this question of Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I think you can feel the desperation in their heart. After everything that they've witnessed for two months, after everything that they've journeyed through, after the, 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 the brokenness of Good Friday and then the resurrection hope, of Easter Sunday, that they're reaching this moment of going, Jesus, is this it? Is this when your kingdom is coming? Is this when the world will truly recognize you as king? Lord, when are you going to do it? Jesus responds, not in the way that we would expect, but he says this. He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or season that the Father has by his own authority. And I can just imagine that their heart would have sunk at this moment. So desperate they were for the kingdom. So desperate were they for Jesus to kick out the Romans, for their enemies of the Jews to be trampled. Jesus responds, it's not the time to know. I think many of us in our own Christianity are asking that same question. Whether consciously or not, but in our hearts, we go, Jesus, when are you coming? When is your kingdom breaking in? I see the brokenness of this world. I see the enemies of God triumphing. I see the world going to hell in a handbasket. And God, just come and break in. I need you in this moment. In our own lives, when we're, when we're struggling, whether it's with pain and the need of healing, whether it's through turmoil that we're going through, whether it's a loss of job, financial struggles, we go, God, I need you to break in to this moment. I need your kingdom here. I need your kingdom. Jesus doesn't finish the answer there. He says this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I can imagine the disciples are going, what? what? Seriously, like I've asked this question. I'm pouring my heart out here. God, I need you to break in. And all that you're doing is giving me a job to 
All you're doing is giving me a task, a mandate that I need to accomplish. And he's going, no, you've missed the point. You've missed the connection. You cannot separate out that desire of saying, God, when is your kingdom going to break in? When is your kingdom going to appear in my life? You cannot separate it from the answer of, but I will send my Holy Spirit to you. And you will be my witnesses into uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What we see is that Jesus refocuses the direction of the disciples. And so instead, the question being of when is your kingdom coming, Jesus wants them to ask, what is the role that you are wanting me to play within your kingdom? Because the kingdom of God was already breaking in. The kingdom of God had already advanced when Jesus bore our sin on the cross. The kingdom of God had already been announced when he resurrected from the grave, when he defeated sin and he defeated death. That is when the kingdom of God started to manifest here on earth. And the disciples had missed it. And so what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom is here. What you need to be asking is, what is the role that you want me to play? What is the job that you want me to and I love that answer is, go and be my witnesses. Go to the ends of the earth and proclaim that God's kingdom is here. Go and proclaim that I am king. Go and proclaim that Jesus is king, that he sits upon the throne. Verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of of their sight. Jesus challenges them with this new role in the kingdom. And then this cloud, uh, an an Old Testament picture of God's presence, envelopes him. And Jesus rises up and he disappears. And for many, that, that could have been the end of the story. That could have been it. But something started to shift in the disciples' hearts. They knew that Jesus going was a part of the fulfillment of God's kingdom breaking in. They knew that Jesus had to leave, that he could send his Holy Spirit, his helper, the advocate, to come and live within them. The ascension then fundamentally becomes Jesus' coronation. It is in the ascension, it is when when God raises him up that Jesus becomes king. The reason that is so important is that that promise of the Holy Spirit can only really take hold. We can only really have kind of confidence that Jesus will deliver if we believe that Jesus has the authority to give us that promise. I could make all kinds of promises to I could say, I'm going to write each and every single one of you a check for 100,000 dirhams. But if you have no trust in me, if you have no confidence that I have the authority or the ability to deliver on my promise, then my promise is useless. But when Jesus says, I will pour out my spirit upon you, wait in Jerusalem, wait until, uh, wait for 10 days, and then I will pour out my spirit, we can have confidence in that because we know that Jesus is king. We know that Jesus has the authority given to him from God to make such 
Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is Jesus talking about. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You could translate that last line as uh, every tongue confess that Jesus is King. You see what Paul is doing as he's writing to the church in Philippi is he's showing uh, the church the, the spiritual reality behind the earthly context of Jesus' ascension. He's showing us that when, when God raised Jesus, when, when God exalted Jesus into heaven, that actually what took place was that he was then seated at the right hand of the Father. And to be seated at the right hand of the Father was a, was a sign of honor, was it was a sign of power, it was a sign of authority. And so God is making this statement, God is revealing it through Paul, that, that when Jesus rose up, God transferred all authority, all power, all dominion in the universe onto Jesus. And as a result, every single knee will one day declare that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. Just think about that for the moment. All power, all authority, all dominion has been given to Jesus. That situation, that pain, that brokenness, that trial, that temptation, that struggle, that sorrow, that grief, that weeping. Jesus is above all of it. God has given him all authority. All power, all dominion. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, puts it like this. According to the working of his great might and he, uh, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So again, we, we see the same language. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills it all. When he raised him, this is Jesus from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This isn't just Jesus going home. This isn't just Jesus going to hang with his father, but if it's something... Um, fundamental, there's something critical that is taking place in this moment. But God is honoring Jesus. But God is transferring this authority where God is glorifying Jesus so that Jesus can be called King. I know I keep going over this point, but I, I really want it to break into our hearts. Because in that, what we can say is that in the ascension, there is no part of the universe there is no part of our life that is beyond the control and the authority of Jesus. This is why the ascension matters. Because yes, Jesus' death on the cross would have, would have paid for our sin. Jesus' resurrection would have given us the hope of new life. But it was only in his ascension 
Does he have the authority to be able to call us as children? Does he have the authority to kind of bring us into salvation? And so we cannot separate the ascension from the resurrection. If we just have one, that's great, but it doesn't mean anything. But we need both. And so we need to make sure that we are proclaiming a whole gospel. That we're not just talking about a man who died and rose from the dead, but we're talking about a man who died and rose from the dead and now is seated at the right hand of God. I love the fact that it uses the word seated. And again, it's such a small word, but it's so important. When I finish preaching, what will I do? I will go, I'll step on the stage, and I will sit down because my job is done. I have completed what I was set out to do this morning. And so when it says that Jesus was raised up, was exalted, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, what it means is that the work that Jesus came to earth to do, to pay for our sin, to offer us eternal life, to offer us a path of salvation, is completed. And we can have full trust and full confidence in that. It's not like, oh, there's just a little bit more to do, there's just a few things I need to tweak, it's just, you know, it's 90% there, but I'll just finish it off. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We can have complete confidence in our salvation. We can have complete confidence in the promises of Jesus. We can have complete confidence and trust that when Jesus says, I will pour out my spirit on you, that he will deliver. And what I love about this is that this isn't just sort of um, the early church interpreting this or kind of working out what was going on, but this has been a prophecy all throughout the Old Testament. We, uh, I finished on, um, on Good Friday reading um, Isaiah 53, and there's that beautiful bit at the end where it says something along the lines of, because my servant has uh, suffered much affliction, I will raise him. Daniel chapter 7, we read this amazing vision that he has in the night, starting in verse uh, 13, Dan, uh, Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man is a, uh, an Old Testament term that was used for the Messiah. And so in this, Daniel is, is making a prophecy about Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days, again, is a uh, an Old Testament term for God, and it's, it's referring to kind of the eternal nature of God the Father. So there came one like Jesus, and he came to God the Father and was presented before him. And to him, so this is Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one and shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel, 700 years before Jesus, is having this vision that one day there will be this Messiah who will come and, and, and will suffer. And God will raise him up. God will exalt him. And he will give him all authority, all power, all dominion to him. That is amazing. That blows my mind, this idea that this was always the plan of God. This was always the heart of God. This was always the desire within the Trinity that Jesus would become king. That 
Jesus would be sovereign, that we would be able to declare that Jesus is Lord. So just to start drawing this to a close, John, when he has, um, is taken up into heaven and has his revelation, particularly in uh, chapter 4, he sees this throne room. And in the center of this throne is this one who looks like a slain lamb. He sees Jesus in the middle of heaven. He sees Jesus in the center of the universe, the place where, where the whole of the universe is, is administrated from. And in it is Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, being glorified. Because all authority, all power, all dominion has been handed over to him. That gives me hope. And so what does this mean for us? Well, I think there are sort of three kind of key uh, takeaways of this. The first of the Ascension shows us that it is a kingdom of power. I will pour out my Holy Spirit so that you can go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I will give you the power that you need to fulfill my mandate. I will pour out my Spirit on you and give you the power that you need to be bearers of my kingdom. I love the fact that when you go into the darkness, when you go into the most broken moment, you are bearers of God's kingdom. You are announcing, you are proclaiming God's kingdom into that place, into that situation, into that moment. And so where there was hopelessness, you get to speak in hope. Where there was grief and sorrow, you get to speak in joy. Where there was hurt and pain, you get to speak in healing. Where there is people who are lost, you get to speak salvation. You are bearers of God's kingdom, and we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Second of all, this is a kingdom of authority. This is a kingdom of sovereignty. Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven with all power and all authority. So I do not need to worry about whether the promises of God will come true. I do not need to worry about whether Jesus is able to handle this situation. I do not need to worry about whether Jesus has, you know, the right forms with the right stamps and the right signature and it's been attested and accredited and the right ribbon has been stuck on it because I know that all authority belongs to Jesus. And so it means I can read the promises that he makes to me in, in the Bible and know no matter the context, they will come to pass. They will come to pass. Oh, Johnny, can you guess what it's about? And then lastly, it's a kingdom of hope. The ascension gives us the confidence and the assurance that death is not the end. It gives us the confidence and assurance that it's not just eternal life that, that God is offering us, but he's offering us the, the, the ability to live in heaven with him. To be one of those multitudes that surround the throne and worship him for all eternity. There's such a great hope 
becomes the essential. There's such a great hope that kind of speaks into the despair that we all too often can feel in our lives. The promises of Jesus can be experienced by anyone who calls upon the name of our Lord. No matter what you've done, no matter what your life may have been like, there is hope in the name of Jesus. There is hope in the fact that all we need to do to be saved is cry out and say, Jesus, I recognize that you are king. And I want you to be king of my life. So finally at the end, as the disciples were standing there, they're looking up towards heaven and pick it up, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him. This isn't the end of the story. We have a hope that there is so much more that lays ahead of us. We have a hope that Jesus will return. We have the hope that knowing that this brokenness of the world is not how it's going to be forever, that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I love the picture that John sees in Revelation. He sees this city. And it says that there was, there was no sun or moon in this city because it did not need light. Because the presence of God in the center illuminated the city for all men. That is the promise that each and every single one of us can experience. I'm just going to ask you to stand right now and first and, and always the most important response to a, to a word like this, to this whole journey, is that there, I believe, are one, two, maybe even more who have never been in a place in their life where they've been able to say, Jesus, you are king. Jesus, I want you to be king over my life. I want you to be king over my brokenness. I want you to be king over my heart. I want you to be king over my failures because I'm fed up of trying to do this myself. It doesn't get me anywhere. It just leaves me into greater despair, greater pain, greater hurt. Jesus, I recognize that you are king. So just while you've got your eyes closed now, just want you, if that's you, to do something really bold and just raise your hand and just say that, Jesus, in this moment, I need your salvation. Jesus, in this moment, I need you to come and be king of my life. That's you. Just raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, the word that God gave me a little bit earlier that I shared is that it sits in Hebrews. Some of you have heard my voice to have hardened your heart. 
think there may be one or two more who have been hearing week after week God calling their name, but, but, but there's been something that's held you back. And Jesus today wants to say to you, don't, don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this moment to come into my kingdom. So if that's you, just raise your hand. pray a prayer, not that there's anything magical about this, but it's just a prayer of surrender. So if you are one of those four people that raised your hand, just, just pray this prayer in your heart. And for the rest of us, I think it's just a great time to affirm this over our own life. Jesus, I thank you that you are king, that you sit upon the throne of heaven, that, that you have been raised, that you have been exalted above all powers and authority and dominion. And so, Lord, in this moment, I surrender the throne of my life. No longer will I try and be king, but I hand my life over to you. Jesus, come into my heart now. Come into my life. Come be sovereign. service. I'd love to chat to you. We've got uh, just a gift, a Bible that we'd love to give you in a devotional, either myself or Seaclay uh, or any of the ministry team. Don't leave this place without having that conversation. Second of all, I think there's a, there's a wider challenge for us. Are we prepared to be bearers of God's are we prepared to be people who will receive the power of his spirit and go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world? And so just as we spend some time in worship, I just want you to kind of ask that question to God. I want you to ask God, is there something in my life that is holding me back from experiencing that power? Is there something that's holding me back Does it that's uh, for me experiencing your sovereignty, that's stopping me from experiencing your hope. Let's just do business with God. Let's not rush 